While you're slaving over a hot computer, we're entertaining and informing you. Sit back and listen carefully. Enjoy some great conversation with TalkZone.com. Internet Talk Radio. Just listen. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. This is Dr. Larry Robbins, and welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm here with my co-host, Susie Robbins, my wife. She's a social worker, and I'm a neurologist and pain specialist and psychopharmacologist. And we bring you each and every week the interesting cutting-edge stories of the week in medicine and health. You can email us at DocLarryRobbins, L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at AOL.com, or go to our website, HeadacheDrugs.com. That's one long word, HeadacheDrugs.com, where we have all kinds of wonderful archives and information and our email. Now, our first story today came out this week, and it was a study on early surgical menopause, which is taking out the ovaries or doing a complete hysterectomy. Premenopausal women who undergo surgical removal of the ovaries have an increased risk for later on developing neurologic disorders, particularly Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's. This was a large study, and the researchers said that the effect is age-dependent. The younger the woman has uh, the complete hysterectomy, the worse, and suggests a critical age window for neuroprotection by estrogen. In other words, estrogen which is produced by the ovaries, protects the brain and the nervous system, and you need it for at least a certain amount of years in your life. Otherwise, you're at increased risk. This is a very large study. It was uh, one of an ongoing study of many things done in Minnesota that's been over uh, many decades, actually. As was the case for dementia and Alzheimer's, the effect of surgery was age-dependent also on Parkinson's, and the risk increased with younger age at surgery. Based on findings from the two investigations, the researchers conclude that the neuroprotective effect of estrogen might be general and may involve many mechanisms and types of brain and nervous tissue cells. So the bottom line is we need estrogen at least for a certain number of years in our lives, and losing the estrogen early increases the risk of dementia and Parkinson in women who've had their ovaries removed, particularly in their 20s or 30s. Susie, any thoughts? Well, when people typically have a hysterectomy or when it's just the ovaries, is it called a oophorectomy? Yeah. Uh, do they almost always go on medical estrogen at that point? Yeah, nowadays, in the old days, uh, some women didn't, and some women can't take estrogen, and that's a problem. What would be some of the reasons that a woman who's undergone a hysterectomy could not take estrogen afterwards? Well, if you, say, have endometriosis and estrogen is a problem and you get a hysterectomy, I'm not an expert on this, but I believe that afterwards many women uh, or some women don't go on anything. Conditions like that or say you're at high risk for bre- uh, with breast cancer and you have a hysterectomy. Now, some women absolutely need uh, a hysterectomy, complete hysterectomy with ovaries taken out. And it's, there's no issue. There's no, um, you know, you absolutely need it. You have cancer or something like that. But what this study points out is in questionable areas. Some women, you could go with a hysterectomy, they have a condition, or you could wait and wait it out even though they're having problems. 
And according to the study, maybe we should be waiting it out. Even in the headache world, some women have had hysterectomies for, or at least oophorectomy, where the ovaries are taken out, for severe menstrual headaches. And it's rarely done, but occasionally. And I think looking at the study, it, it should almost never be done. So in those questionable, a lot of times the gynecologist and the woman uh, have gone along a year or two talking about a hysterectomy. Maybe she could have it, maybe she couldn't. And I think this points out that um, uh, the long-term effects are, are more. Now, they haven't really talked about going on estrogen after the hysterectomy, the oophorectomy. Maybe that does protect women. And this speaks to going on some estrogen anyways, if you can, if you have a condition where you can. Well, it sounds like, at least based on this study, if there's a question of whether or not a woman needs an oophorectomy or a hysterectomy, delaying can sometimes make a big difference in their neurological health health down the road. Yeah, the later, the better. And surgical menopause can be devastating emotionally, physically, and the earlier it seems the worse. See, that questionable time is sometimes a woman is around 38, 40 years old, and uh, she needs uh, her uterus taken out, a partial hysterectomy, or one ovary taken out. And the issue is, should you take the other ovary out? Why not? Because then you won't get ovarian cancer. And uh, sometimes it's done then under the, well, why not? Maybe you won't get ovarian cancer. And there's some thought to that. But this study throws some cold water on that, saying, well, maybe not. Maybe we should leave in part of one ovary. Now, our next study is, I think, very significant. It talks about TV risk and attention or attention deficit. Uh, more TV increased risks for attention problems. Now, in the study, young children who watch more than a couple of hours of TV a day are more likely to have attention problems as adolescents, New Zealand researchers have discovered. Now, the data for this, it was an interesting study. It was done many years ago, uh, but they're publishing it now. And nowadays, kids watch more TV, more Nintendo, more computer than we used to. We used to just have three channels, and now there's 300. Now, the two-hour point of TV a day is very, very clear with our data, the researchers said, very consistent. Uh, as far as more than two hours a day is is not good for kids' attention. We're not saying don't watch TV, just don't watch too much TV. Now, the researchers suggest that kids who get used to watching lots of attention-grabbing TV might find ordinary life situations, like the classroom, pretty boring. And classrooms are boring enough. So it's also possible, they add, that TV may simply crowd out time spent doing other things that are building attention and concentration skills. And I agree with that. You know, kids used to do uh, more board games and uh, play chess and bridge and, and stuff like that, and now they're just basically on the computer and watching TV. Also, what about Nintendo and video games? I think that it does lead to decreased attention. Uh, and also the TV itself. It's not just the time. We used to have three channels, so we sat there and watched one. Maybe we'd get up and switch it to the other one. But now with so many, people have their clickers, and they can't stand to watch more than, at least the, the men anyways, more than a minute of one show, or they won't watch any commercials. Uh, so the clickers are adding to the tension problems. It just seems to me that youngins, maybe 16 to 25 years old, 
have short attention spans. You have to get your point in with them real quick, uh, or they're off to something else. And I think that it's partly the Nintendo is so short, the computer, the TV, it's just training their brain in bad ways. It comes under the law of unintended consequences. We have these wonderful electronic things, TV and uh, Nintendo and computers, but the unintended consequences, maybe we're shortening the attention span of everybody. People are reading less uh, and sitting in a corner or going to a library less, and it may not be such a good thing. Susie Robbins, any uh, thoughts on this? Well, how about, too, if we look at just how society has changed over the last few decades? Kids are not outside playing in general as much as they used to. I know we've talked on the program about how kids these days, when they do get together with other kids, it's it's planned. Mom takes Junior over to a friend's house. And I think because of that and because of parents more mothers are out working. They don't want their kids outside when they're not home. They want them inside where they feel like they're safer. Those kids are most likely going to be watching more TV because they uh, are inside. Another point maybe we need to think about is what you actually brought up, and that is we didn't have so many choices on the, sta- on the television when we were growing up. If there were three or four stations. If there was nothing on, we'd turn it off and walk away. Well, now you don't have to turn it off and walk away because there's always another choice. And that probably keeps kids tuned in longer also. You know, I think that's a great point. You know, in the old days, say in New York, I didn't grow up in New York, but where they played, they just went out on the street and played stickball, and they invented games. And I grew up around Chicago. We did the same thing. We'd go out and just, parents would say, just go out and play and come back for dinner and then come back uh uh, when it's dark and uh, go and play and you invent your games and you have interactions and now the kids are on their cell phone on Nintendo watching the computer alone and um, I'm not sure it's such a good thing maybe we should um, have more research and programs into this and you know I can imagine uh, a community or even a, a neighborhood uh, having or a school having say uh, no electronic time from 4 to 6 p.m., where kids come home and they actually have to go out to the playroom and invent a game or play basketball or play a game. Uh, that might be a cool thing. Suze? You know, I, I agree with that, but maybe as a society we have to start with the parents and the adults changing their their patterns also with the television and the computer and the cell phones because we as adults are certainly into the electronics just as much, if not more, than the kids. So for that to be passed down to the kids, I think we have to all look at our habits. With yeah, that. I think that's a very good point because they use us as as role models. Adults who smoke, their kids tend to smoke more cigarettes and marijuana. That was a recent study. Uh, they look at us as uh, role models or at least accepting. So if we're sitting in front of the TV like a couch potato for eight hours, then the kids do. You know, and also, as I'm thinking, as you're suggesting from this study, is I think we talked about a few weeks ago maybe that there's all sorts of videos that are out for babies and for young, young toddlers that parents are encouraged for their children to watch. 
and that ultimately these may not be so healthy for children. Maybe another thing we need to all look at is the age when children really start watching television and to maybe try to delay it a little bit. Yeah, we uh, touched on that in a show a few weeks ago that was interesting, a study on little kids who watch the hour DVDs where the DVDs were basically like babysitters and those kids were not speaking as well, not talking as well. So it's interesting, some of these electronics do really backfire. I bet they said the same thing when radio came in and people were saying, you know, all this newfangled radio that we're all listening to, we're not reading books and things, so maybe some things never change. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, we're turning to a very significant study about suicide rates in kids, and I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from these recent studies on depression and uh, suicide rates. From 2003 to 2004, suicide rates in U.S. youth, now they looked at 10 to 24 years of age, but I think it probably would apply to adults also. Suicide rates greatly increased, and that was the first increase in many years. From 1990 to 2003, the suicide rates had decreased. Now, not so coincidentally, from 1990 to 2003, when suicide rates decreased, the use of Prozac and Zoloft and the SSRIs came in, and with the more use of those, we had lower suicide rates. Well, all of a sudden, around 2001, 2002, we started having reports of, do these drugs increase the suicide risk? And the answer is, maybe a little, in rare situations, suicide thinking in the first three weeks going on them, but it's rare. But a recent study showed that uh, people on SSRIs have much lower suicide risks, and even in the first month after going on Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, suicide risk goes down. They used to think that maybe it was increased in the first three weeks. So you go back to 2003, 2004, there was a lot of heat on the FDA. There were congressional hearings. Uh, Britain, uh, England uh, did, I think, um, the wrong thing by banning antidepressants in kids and adolescents, except for Prozac for some reason. And what happened in England was the diagnosis of depression went way down in uh, adolescence. The treatment went way down. Instead of kids getting into therapy, because there weren't enough therapists, of course, kids just got more depressed and committed suicide more. So this was a study in the United States that suicide risk greatly increased after the FDA issued what's called a black box warning on the antidepressants, saying essentially this may increase suicide risk. And now the FDA is thinking about uh, taking off that black box warning, which they've never done once they issued one. But I remember it was a chilling effect on doctors because the legal system here, uh, say you have a 15-year-old and you decide they're depressed, uh, you put them on Prozac, they commit suicide, which doesn't have much to do with the Prozac, it's just uh, some people with depression commit suicide. There's a risk, 10 to 15% risk, lifetime of suicide with major depression. Well, there's always a lawsuit. The parents sue the doctor, they sue Lily, the manufacturer, etc., etc. And this chilled a lot of doctors when they got this black box warning. So they stopped diagnosing depression and they stopped treating it. Basically, um, I think that uh, the use of SSRIs went way down. Uh, that's been shown in various studies. And along with that, the suicide risk went way up. 
Now, how did this happen? What happened with the FDA? Well, you had, I think, some misguided doctors testifying who are anti-drug, and uh, there's always some 99% of doctors are very pro-antidepressant, but there's a few who say, well, let's just have everybody see a therapist, which doesn't work out. Therapists are great, but because of money and time and insurance uh, and stigma, most patients just won't follow up, or many won't. There's just not adequate resources. You also had parents testifying to Congress and the FDA saying that their child had committed suicide or tried, and these are heart-rendering stories. But we've seen before letting a few anecdotal reports and letting somebody go and uh, cry and say that uh, terrible things have happened. Establishing public policy based on that is a very dangerous thing. You, You can see in this situation, those parents did influence the FDA and did influence Congress, and it was part of the decision for the black box warning to be issued. And what happened? Well, probably we've had thousands more suicides uh, because of the black box warning. It was the law of unintended consequences. Let's put the warning on. Well, it had a chilling effect. Pediatricians were very afraid to diagnose and treat depression. Uh, and other doctors, such as uh, me, I see a lot of adolescents. We diagnose depression. And I remember after that came out, I was very reluctant because... Uh, the whole suicide thing, you have a kid, if you put them on medicine and they try or they commit suicide, all of a sudden the doctor, the messenger, is blamed. So we stopped diagnosing it. And that happened countrywide. And um, uh, the consequence is thousands of kids attempting suicide because of untreated depression. Now, interestingly, also in this study, the method of suicide changed the, in 1990, uh, the most common method for suicide was still gunshots, even though these were adolescents. By 2004, hanging and suffocation had become the favored method for girls, uh, mostly due to a huge increase in hanging and suffocation among 10 to 14-year-olds, which is a particularly gruesome uh, way. Gunshot injury still remained the most common suicide uh, method for boys. So what we had was the FDA issuing a black box warning on antidepressants, which I don't think, in my opinion, should have been issued. Uh, It was based on faulty data and uh, testimony. Uh, It put a chill on pediatricians and doctors in diagnosing uh, depression, which led to less medicines and less therapy and more suicides and more depression. Now, coincidentally, another study came out that in adults, the diagnosis of depression went way down in 2003, 2004, right after that issuing of the black box warning. So this this fed over into adults, and everybody was really wondering in this study why the diagnosis went down. Well, I can tell you why from my perspective as a physician. If you can't treat somebody, if you're afraid to use the medicines, you're going to try not to diagnose it. You're not going to go out of your way. And often we have to go out of our way to diagnose depression because people come in for physical problems, stomach, headaches. They may also be depressed, but it's easy to ignore those. But if you're not going to treat it, if you're afraid to treat it legally because you're going to be sued if something happens with a medicine, well, you're not going to diagnose it. We're going to go back to 1988 where depression was very poorly diagnosed. So I think that the... um, Warnings on the antidepressants fed over into adults and led to bad things. 
So I think I'll get off my high horse now and soapbox and over to Susie. Well, you know, as you're talking about this, it it is depressing to hear this trend that's taken place, and you wonder how much of it is coming from a political standpoint, you know, with the fear-induced with doctors, uh, not only with this area of depression, but certainly across the board with doctors fearing for malpractice at every turn. Um, you know, and I'm also thinking about all the good studies over the years in talking about and dealing with depression suggests that antidepressants along with therapy is almost always the best way to go with dealing with depression and treating depression. Yeah, I, I agree, and we need both. We need therapy or antidepressants or one or the other. Unfortunately, I would guesstimate that at least half the depression in the country goes untreated without either. Now, people don't want, particularly men, don't want to get it treated. Uh, they they don't want to face having to go. There's the money of seeing doctors and uh, therapists and everything. But I think that untreated depression, it's just the worst thing in the world. There's a study that we may get to later in this program. Otherwise, we'll do it uh, in subsequent weeks that depression really screws up people's lives more than any other chronic illness. And I think that we can handle physical illnesses. We can handle even anxiety or insomnia. When you're really down and depressed, it just kills all quality of life. Uh, Suze? And also, good point, also along those lines, uh, it does bring down a person in their life in such horrific ways, but also those people around them. So you can really see the breakdown of a family. Say, Let's say you've got a single parent, a single mom, and she's depressed. Who's taking care of the kids then when she can't? Yeah, it ping-pongs around the family and uh, leads to dysfunction in in the kids, and depression has a huge fallout. Now, on a less depressing topic, uh, there was a study showing no clear heart benefits for antioxidants in women. Now, antioxidants include vitamin C and E and beta-carotene, and the thought was always that these are good. They do good things scavenging the bad things in our bloodstream, and uh, good things will happen, but we need proof. And as more studies come in, there's less and less proof that these do anything. In fact, last year, as we've talked about on this show, vitamin E uh, was shown to increase the risk for heart problems, and many people threw away their vitamin E. We don't recommend vitamin E in general or at most 200 units a day. So in this study, vitamin C and E and beta-carotene taken alone or in combination do nothing to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events uh, such as angina or heart attacks. Widespread use of these individual agents, the researchers said, for cardiovascular protection is not warranted. And this is a number of uh, another in a number of studies that really have shown this. But supplementation with vitamin C, vitamin E, or beta carotene, a lower in combination, over an average of nine years that they looked at, had no impact on the effects of heart attack, stroke. Uh, the need for bypass surgery, etc. There was no harm, but there was no help. However, women who took both C and E together experienced somewhat fewer strokes, so maybe there is something to that and we need more research. I have nothing against vitamin C and E, but we really need research into the vitamins. We've had it. Vitamin D is holding up. Uh, recently, there was another study this week out that vitamin D 
leads to markedly less uh, colon cancer and breast cancer uh, and probably several other cancers. So vitamin D is holding up, but C and E just aren't. And it's really buyer beware out there. You see a lot of claims by the vitamin industry and people about herbs and vitamins, but very few are really holding up. Susie? You know, I know we've talked about multivitamins on this show in the past. What about someone out there who's taking a multivitamin that has vitamin C and D in it? Should they be concerned about taking that? Well, the multivitamins don't generally have uh, more than uh, minimal amounts of C and E. They don't have mega amounts. So it's not so much of a concern. I think that's fine. The other concern, though, is are multivitamins really worth it? As we mentioned previously, there was a big study that men who got prostate cancer, if they happened to be on multivitamins, their prostate cancer was much worse. So we're trying to get men off multivitamins, but maybe that applies to women also. The other problem, outside of the fact that benefits have not really been shown from multivitamins in large studies, is quality control. Only 2 out of 20 multivitamins really held up. Uh, One was Centrum and the other was women's one a day. Uh, but the others had high lead levels, or they didn't have what they're supposed to have in them. So it's really iffy whether we should be taking multivitamins. Suze? You know, I think growing up we've all been led to believe, or many of us, that, you know, take that multivitamin a day. It'll help protect uh, when you're not getting all the nutrients you need. It really feels much less settling now that... Um, it's not such a sure thing to take your multivitamin, and I guess we need to all be thinking about what we're eating and getting our vitamins in a more natural way. Yeah, I think so. You know, more vegetables. There's another study this week that vegetables decrease the risk for cancer, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that, but getting enough vegetable and fruits is, uh, there's problems. I think that time of year can be a problem. Cost, uh, a lot of people in our country cannot afford uh, or don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables very often, or people's stomachs or GI systems can't tolerate much. But the idea is to do what you can as far as fruits and vegetables. This is the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins, here with my co-host Susie Robbins. You can reach us at Dr. Larry Robbins or go to our website, which is headachedrugs.com. That's one long word, headachedrugs.com. The next study looked at testosterone, how safe it is is it for men. Now, testosterone is one of those hormones that goes down as you get older. It goes down in women also. Women have testosterone and men have estrogen. So both go down as we get older. And the issue is should we be taking testosterone for energy to feel better? But there are risks. Uh, this was a study. Testosterone supplements may make aging men feel and look better. But the results of the study concluded that it could lead to kidney damage and worsen high blood pressure. Testosterone gradually decreases with age in healthy men. Some doctors have called that andropause as opposed to menopause. Now, a growing number of healthy uh, men do take testosterone, and some women do, to improve their feelings of well-being, improve sex drive, muscle mass, The researchers in the study said that no well-controlled clinical studies have looked at the cardiovascular system and testosterone, and our research actually shows that testosterone increases the risk for high blood pressure and kidney disease. 
You know, in previous studies, they've shown that testosterone in men increases the risk for prostate cancer. Now, women don't have that risk, so it may actually be that testosterone is somewhat safer in women than in men. So the issue is, should we supplement testosterone? And I think it's a case-by-case basis, not in all men in our country. If you're very low in testosterone, very tired, and they've checked levels uh, doing it, but knowing that it could increase things, checking your blood pressure uh, is uh, very warranted if people do go on testosterone. Suze? You know, as you're talking about this, it it reminds me that so much of medicine, while it is scientific, nothing is always definite for sure and that things do change. Um, you know, and here's another one where, you know, it's it's kind of iffy. It's a gray area as to whether or not um, someone needs to take more. I guess, you know, a dialogue with your doctor, you know, reading up and just trying to make the best educated decision you can for yourself. Now, if you've noticed, uh, a lot of younger athletes, pro, uh, but also college and high school, are taking steroids, and uh, they're starting. To, some states are starting to do steroid testing for athletes in high school, which is maybe not a bad idea. I'm not sure. Uh, you could debate either side of that. But how about testosterone? You see testosterone showing up in the reports for some of the pro athletes uh, and the bicycle uh, on the tour, such as the Tour de France. And uh, testosterone will give you more energy. Uh, it, does, it is an illegal banned substance for most of the uh, sports and certainly the tour. But the issue is uh, young people taking testosterone like this, are they raising their risk, uh, the men for prostate cancer, et cetera, et cetera? It's, it's another risk. And I know that a lot of young people, high school and college athletes, if they can get a little edge, they'll take something, even if you told them, uh, that they'll take, there was actually a study on this um, about 10 years ago. They asked Olympic athletes, if you could take this substance, say it's a steroid, and win a gold medal in your sport, but you'll die in five years. Now, these are people 20 years old. So you'll die in five years. 60-some-odd percent said, sure, I'll take it. So young people don't think about the consequences, or what they think is, okay, they'll smoke cigarettes, They'll do these drugs, they'll take steroids, but something good will happen in four or five years or sort of magical thinking. Something magic is going to happen and they'll be fine, but it doesn't always work that way. Now, in another study, uh, there was a study on early childhood abuse, sexual, uh, physical, uh, that it sets us up for migraines and depression. And there's been studies like this before, but I think these are important. Stressful early life events, the researchers have concluded, such as child abuse, may make women more susceptible to migraine and depression as adults. This study confirms adverse experiences, particularly childhood abuse, predispose women to health problems later in life. According to the researchers, women with migraine who had depression were twice as likely as those with migraine alone to report being sexually abused as a child. So when you throw depression in the mix, we have more childhood abuse. If the abuse continued beyond age 12, the women with, with migraine were five times more likely to report depression. And how does this happen? Well, abuse, whether it's sexual, emotional, physical, abuse that's sustained as a child changes our brain chemistry. It predisposes us to various problems, mostly depression, anxiety, chronic pain, as an adult, if you look at people with severe chronic pain, 
fibromyalgia, severe daily headaches, there is an increased risk that they had abuse as a, as a kid. And it does really change a developing brain. The other thing that we've talked about on the show is that people are born with certain predispositions genetically uh, to resilience, which is how well they're going to handle things. And we did a piece a few weeks ago on the serotonin transporter gene. Based on its shape, you can predict how well people are going to handle adverse events. For instance, if two sisters are severely abused in a, a very bad childhood, uh, if one has one shape of the serotonin gene, she'll end up fine usually. If another has another shape, she'll end up a total mess with severe, severe depression, not be able to function at all as a human. And um, so there's a predisposition to how people react to abuse also. And with abuse, it's not just are you abused or were, were you not abused. It's the length of time. It's the severity. It's um, who did it, how long it went on for what happened? So uh, some people with one uh, abuse situation that happened one day uh, when they're age nine don't have any consequences, and other people do. Susie? Now, can we also suggest that people who get migraines and depression in general also have a predisposition to that in a genetic sort of way? So if you um, have a predisposition, say, to depression and you've also been um, abused as a child, the, st- the uh, stack is against you in terms of you're going to have a much more larger chance of having depression later on. Absolutely. I think our genetic predisposition to depression uh, will color things. If there's nobody in the family with depression, which is unusual, but say nobody has depression and you have abuse as a child, you're going to be less likely to get depression. There's not those genes running around. But if everybody has depression or, say, mom had severe depression, uh, grandparent had was institutionalized, um, there's a lot of substance abuse and depression running around the family, you are more likely genetically to react poorly to abuse. Suze? Just as you uh, could see somebody who grew up in a very functional, uh, loving home who develops migraines down the road because they're genetically programmed to get migraines, even though they had uh, a lovely childhood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And most people with migraines did not have abuse as a child. What we're really talking about, abuse as children makes it more likely to get chronic daily headaches later on, chronic severe migraines where nothing's working, and severe depression. But most people with migraines, it's just a genetic illness inherited. You got, you know, we got our good genes and our bad. I wish we could select our genes. I tell patients all the time, well, you got your good genes and your bad. You got uh, brains and good looks, but, you know, somebody gave you migraines. Would be better if we could pick our genes. Let's take a quick time out, but stay with us on TalkZone.com. You've discovered TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, in another study, it's interesting. Moderate exercise may beat intense workouts. 
Moderate exercise like walking, according to the researchers, may be as good or better than intense workouts when it comes to certain heart health measures. In a study of 240 overweight middle-aged adults, researchers found that moderate exercise, but not really the vigorous activity, improved blood fats called triglycerides. All of this is very good news for sedentary people who find it hard to leap from the couch to a daily run, according to the study's authors. On average, the authors found that only the moderate exercises showed lasting improvements in triglycerides. The bottom line, according to the researchers, is that most all of the benefits of exercise are related to the amount rather than the intensity. An exception is that vigorous exercise like jogging is more effective at boosting cardiovascular fitness, which may or may not decrease our risk for heart attacks. The wonderful thing about moderate exercise is that people need only to find a 15-minute block of time here and there and not go crazy with it. Now, I've preached for a long time with my patients trying to get something. It's the old Weight Watchers motto, move more and eat less, move more, park a little farther away, move more at work, take a little walk, 15 minutes, 10 minutes. I, I try to get people to get a treadmill or a bike at home, read on it. If you can read, uh, sit in watching TV uh, in the morning with cereal, you can be on a treadmill or a bike reading. Well, some people uh, fall off a treadmill if they're reading, so maybe a bike. But uh, the stationary bikes are a lot cheaper than the treadmills. I like people to get a headset or something if they can afford it for walking outside and if they can afford it to join a club. Uh, the newer clubs now, uh, every machine has their own TV and 100 channels. It's the boredom of exercise. That's what keeps people from doing it. And also the old thing, you know, everybody was told, oh, you've got to do an hour a day of vigorous exercise. And, well, only about 3% of people would do it in our country because they like to exercise anyways. We need to remove the boredom of exercise so the clubs help, the, the headsets and iPods help, uh, plunking a TV in front of the t- in, uh, a bike in front of the TV helps. But looking at it as mild to moderate exercise, little chunks of time, think of 10 or 15 minutes, and it's a lot more doable. Now, Susie, I know that you've been doing some uh, weightlifting, strength training. Uh, what do you think about this moderate exercise idea? Well, I think it's interesting in that you know I was thinking about my own exercise routine when I read this article, and it tells me that even though I do the strength training, which is somewhat uh, aggressive, it tells me that just as importantly, I need to be walking more and doing other little bits of exercise. When I do my strength training, it's usually like a 30-minute uh, time span, and it is intense for those 30 minutes. And usually afterwards, uh, you know, I, I'll think to myself, oh, I don't want to do any exercise for a while I've done it. But I think incorporating in just the low-level walking, you know, a few times a week, sounds to me like it's just as beneficial in different ways as the heavy-duty strength training. Yeah, I think that um, weights are certainly, even five minutes once or twice a week of low-level weights uh, can decrease the risk after age 50 for osteoporosis. It's sort of crucial to do a little bit of weights, uh, anything that involves that. But walking, let's face it, in the end, most people won't join a club. Uh, their treadmill or bike at the home becomes a very fancy clothes hanger. And uh, we're talking about walking. 80% of people who continue exercise, probably walking is the most uh, common. And if you can get a buddy for walking 
or a friend, that helps. Uh, people with dogs actually get more exercise uh, if you actually walk the dog or go out and uh, walk with them. So the trick is getting it into your life. And the issue is when people get out of exercise, they get into it, they get out of it. How do they get the inertia to get back into it? Uh, same as a diet. How do you get the inertia? And if I had the answer for that, uh, I'd be a millionaire. But uh, it's a tough thing. I think instead of setting our sights, oh, I'm going to exercise an hour a day and join a club and do really tough stuff, let's start out with five minutes a day, just a little walk uh, or a little bit on the bike reading the paper, and then increase it over three or four weeks, try to do 15 or 20 minutes a day. And then a lot of people will end up doing more on weekends then, they're busier during the week, and end up averaging 20 to 30 minutes a day of something. But we have to start slowly to get the inertia. Now, the next study is a topic that we've talked about a little bit in the past, about drugs on the Internet. Uh, And the title is Bogus Drug Peddlers Thrive on the Internet. In many countries, the abuse and trafficking of prescription drugs, particularly stimulants such as uh, the amphetamines and painkillers, now equals or exceeds the use of illicit drugs such as heroin or cocaine. So prescription drug abuse is becoming a huge problem. Uh, In the United States, prescription drug abuse is uh, up there, number one or two, in the major problem, more than heroin and cocaine. And the massive demand for these drugs, of course, has led to a lot of counterfeits, mostly on the Internet. Uh, It's a market where you can make a lot of money, and the counterfeiters and Internet scams with drugs have gotten much better uh, or more sophisticated for the counterfeiters in the last five years. In many African countries, and this is uh, pretty sad, and parts of Asia and Latin America, more than 30% of medicines on sale might be counterfeit. And uh, they can't afford the drugs, particularly you look at uh, the basic drugs, antibiotics, uh, AIDS drugs, etc. You know, they're expensive, so the counterfeiters are going to come in. It's a huge problem. Now, the Internet provides a perfect channel because there's no national control mechanism, no quality assurance. You don't know what you're getting, really. Uh, many bogus drugs appear to originate in Asia, particularly China, whose image has recently been tarnished uh, by a range of uh, product safety scares. So it's buyer beware, caveat emptor out there on the Internet. I know most of you with email get uh, frequent come-ons from the spam artists as far as, do you want Viagra, do you want Vicodin? And there are sites that actually do, uh, unfortunately, will send real. I, I wish that they would send the fake Vicodin uh, because we've had some patients who get tons. They're addicted to narcotics, and they get codeine or Vicodin on the Internet, uh, some as much as 30 a day. Some of these sites will send people uh, 500 because Vicodin is relatively cheap, so they don't need the counterfeiting. They just get the generic Vicodin, which is hydrocodone, and they'll send people 500 in a month. They don't care uh, because they're offshore and uh, not regulated, and it's a huge problem. Well, aren't there a lot of people out, uh, or at least in the United States at this point, who are purchasing their drugs uh, through Canada because of the uh, price differential that's cheaper? Are there concerns for people in doing that? Well, it, it is different. Uh, the drugs through the Internet, your typical site, may or may not be real. We don't know. It's more likely to be uh, good through Canada. And we thought maybe several years ago that Canadian, uh, the major 
five or seven Canadian uh, drug outlets that were supplied in the United States were more reliable. In general, I think they've been somewhat reliable. But the issue is where do they get the drugs from? It's not that those are bad pharmacies or bad outlets, but uh, if we don't know where they're getting the drugs from, if they're not uh, a sanctioned Canadian or U.S. or a sanctioned uh, uh, manufacturer, if they're getting drugs from other countries, we don't always know. So maybe the supply to them, and this has been a bone of contention, and uh, this issue has been raised lately with Canadian drugs and pharmacies, then maybe their supply is tainted and they're not uh, always getting real drugs and some of them are counterfeit. But I think in general, uh, if we put a percentage on Internet drugs, how, how many are counterfeit, I think... Um, the cheaper ones, such as hydrocodone, Vicodin, it's less likely probably to be counterfeit because the drugs are relatively cheap anyways. But the more expensive ones, uh, Viagra, uh, some of the newer antibiotics, etc., some of the migraine medicines, the more expensive ones are more likely, of course, to be counterfeit. But I think in general the Canadian pharmacies are going to be a heck of a lot more reliable than just randomly on the Internet. It's just... Very sad to think about, um, say, for example, AIDS patients in Africa getting bogus drugs that are doing nothing to help them. But what about the pledges that we've heard from American drug companies saying that they're going to lower the prices on AIDS drugs and getting them to Africa? Will that help in any way uh, versus people trying to buy these drugs on the Internet? Well, I think everybody bashes the drug companies, but I think that they have supplied uh, a large number of drugs for uh, particularly Africa. Um, and uh, I know that the, the drug companies go out of their way to try to have programs where people who can't afford the drugs get them. That being said, um, I think that uh, the drugs are generally overpriced and we need to have some price controls on the companies. We need to get a balance between... They need enough money for research, etc., but we can't let them run unfettered as far as prices. Uh, there's been one proposal that if we allow a longer patent life and that the drug companies can keep it on patent, which I think makes sense, because they have short patent lives. Once they come on the market, they only have uh, relatively few years to recoup their investments, etc., etc., so they jack up the prices. If we have price controls, but... Uh, give them uh, a longer patent life for that, maybe a couple years longer, that may make uh, be a very good compromise. Now, in another study, uh, mothers smoking, particularly of cigarettes, was linked to an increased use of marijuana by the kids. Children with mothers who smoke cigarettes are more likely to be regular marijuana users by early adulthood. Part of the link seems to be explained by the fact that Kids of smokers were more likely to have been rebellious and aggressive as teenagers, which is interesting. Past studies have found that children of smokers are more likely than their peers to take up the habit themselves. Less is known about whether parents' smoking and drinking habits are related to their kids' marijuana use, but it makes sense that uh, parents who smoke cigarettes, their kids are going to do more stuff. Parents who smoke marijuana and drink... Uh, excessively. I think the kids are more likely to do that, too. However, many people who use the drug first try it as a teenager, the authors note, and family environment is an important influence on kids' behavior. A simple message from these results, according to the researchers, is that young people's substance abuse 
is often a consequence of the learning process. Children who are exposed to parents smoking cigarettes may learn this behavior. In other words, parents who continue to smoke during the development of the child not only put themselves at risk, but also as a role model for their kids. Maybe there's also genetic components to this too. Parents who smoke or who are addicted to various substances, the kids may be more likely to become uh, addicted to something too. In having worked with kids with substance concerns, usually what we saw were adolescents who did smoke uh, marijuana. Usually their entry point was smoking cigarettes. So if they're in an environment where one or more parents in the home are smoking cigarettes, most likely they will start smoking cigarettes, and usually from there is a launching of then into marijuana. So it does make sense. I, I can see where that um, that would happen. Now, also, a lot of people still tell me, oh, marijuana, particularly younger people who smoke marijuana, say it's not addictive or uh, very rarely uh, I know as a social worker, you would work with kids at risk, high school kids who were, um, had substance abuse. What do you think about marijuana and addiction in, uh, in adolescence? Well, I think you're right that uh, most kids and maybe even most adults would say that it's not addictive. But studies have shown it, and it, that it is. And certainly over uh, years and years of, of usage, it can have profound effects later on a, on a person's memory and retention of memory. And also, studies have shown that lots and lots of use by young males can later bring rise to issues of being able to father children. Now, on the other hand, the active ingredient in marijuana, which is a cannabinoid, uh, in, in marijuana it's um, THC, tetrahydrocannabinol actually has some medicinal properties and in Canada they're working on a drug as far as a cannabinoid I believe it's out sativa and in Europe they're working on several so there is some usefulness for marijuana Uh, maybe if we could refine it I don't love the idea of people having to smoke it but if we could find the active ingredient refine it maybe we can use it in the future for uh, various medical illnesses such as nausea or pain etc etc Well, that'll wrap it up for this week. You can reach us on the web at headachedrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at headachedrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.